Thank you, thank you so much. Um, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the uh, Hoover Library and Archives. I'm Eric Wakin, I'm the Robert H. Malott Director of Library and Archives at Hoover and it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Stephen Kotkin here to uh, talk about his uh, new book. Before I tell you a bit about Professor Kotkin, um, let me thank a few people who made this possible. John Racian, of course, um, my colleagues in the Library and Archives and at the Hoover Institution, and the Board of Overseers, Hoover Council, and the uh, generous donors to the Hoover Institution. Um, it's very wise to remember that this institution is supported almost 100% on private funds, and we thank everyone for that effort in the last 100 years, and I hope there will be several more 100 years of that support. Um, this institution was founded um, due to one man, Herbert Hoover, in 1919, who gave a $50,000 grant with um, one, um, one statement in a telegram that said, to collect material on war. That's all he said, go out and do that. Imagine doing a donation like that now, it's about $700,000 in purchasing power now, go out and collect material on war. And indeed, the institution started in 1919 as the Hoover War Library, growing today to be this fantastic research center from that one colonel as the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. Um, Mr. Hoover had a way of saying about the Hoover Institution, this institution is not and must not be a mere library. With these purposes as its goal, it must dynamically point the road to peace, to personal freedom, and to the safeguards of the American system. Now, I like to say there are many ways to interpret Mr. Hoover's vision, but as the director of the Library and Archives, <clears throat> I say it's to continue his mission, collect, preserve, describe, and make available the most important material on social, political, and economic change in the 20th and now 21st centuries, and to keep it available for scholars like Professor Kotkin to come here and use them. Now, I can read Steve's bio, but um, rather than do that, which I will in the end, let me just say that I was preparing my remarks for this talk, and he said, you know, while you're doing your remarks, take a look at the a 1931 issue of the Commonweal, and look for, a, uh, for an article called Hoover and Stalin. And indeed, in 1931, in the Commonweal, the Christian magazine, an author wrote an article comparing speeches given in 1931 by Hoover on the one hand and Stalin three days later. And in the article, the author compares these speeches um, sort of hopeful ways. He says um, that Hoover's speech may be, quote, a prelude to an epic of peaceful cooperation, this is 1931, between the peoples of the world. And he looks to Stalin's speech and he says, perhaps Stalin may, quote, dig a road through the collectivized masses for personal ability, personal responsibility, and individualism. Wishful thinking. Um, the article, though, has this false dichotomy between the problems of capitalism and the problems of Bolshevism. And he talks about Bolshevism as a, as a perverted capitalism. But the phrase that it left me with, Steve, most powerfully was that, and I hope you'll explain this in the next volume, Bolsheviks are, quote, the pike in the stagnant fish pond of the bourgeois consciousness. <laughs> now, now, uh, allow me to introduce uh, Professor Kotkin. Professor Kotkin has been teaching at Princeton's history department since 1989. He has established its Global History Initiative. He holds a joint appointment at the Woodrow Wilson School for Public and International Affairs at Princeton. Dear to our hearts, he has been a national fellow at Hoover several times and is currently a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Steve's the author of numerous books, articles, including Uncivil Society, 1989, and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment. Armageddon Averted, The Soviet Collapse, 1970 to 2000, Magnetic Mountain, Stalinism as Civilization, and of course, the work for which we're here to hear him, uh, Stalin, Volume One, Paradox of Power. 
This volume that we have outside for our guests has been called superb by the Wall Street Journal, riveting by the New York Times, magisterial by American Scholar, near definitive, exceptionally ambitious, exciting, and judicious. So I hope Professor Kotkin's talk will be so. And with that, I bring you the, the pike in the stagnant fish pond of Stalin scholarship. Professor Kotkin. Nothing like raising expectations. Now there's only one way to go, and that's down. So thank you so much for the invitation, Eric, and I thank the Hoover. This is my 30th year that I've been coming to the Hoover since I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the 80s, using the materials here. Um, I love coming to Stanford. It's very student body, very diverse here. They come from all over. Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, <laughs> Guangzhou. <laughs> it's also a very nice time to be here in California. As you know, the state of Massachusetts just got dumped on three feet of snow. And of course, they're still reeling from Romney care. <laughs> Yes, yes, so what am I going to talk about? Uh, it's a 749 pages of text, but as one of my friends said, it reads like no more than 620. <laughs> <laughs> the pages just fly by. In fact, I met somebody today who had finished it. They started, of course, when it came out. That was November. <laughs> well, that's very impressive, actually. So I'd like to say a couple of words about the research and the Hoover first, and then a few things about the book, and then have question and answer, if that's OK. So uh, some of you have heard this before, but my life is not digital. Most of your scholars at the Hoover can sit in their office and read the data sets or the surveys or the periodicals or the scholarly journals and do their research right there in the office. They can do it in their home, they can do it on their patio, but my life isn't like that. My life is a life of microfilms, pieces of paper, newspapers that have not been digitized, old journals and old memoirs. And so here at the Hoover, there is, as you know, a vast collection in the archives. Less well understood maybe is that the library is equally as spectacular as the archive. Last summer, as I was finishing the notes, polishing up the notes for volume one, there was no day that passed where I didn't have on my desk in the Hoover Library a book, the only copy of which was here at the Hoover in the entire United States, or two or three copies might exist in the United States. But let's remember, even when I'm in Russia, I, the archives and the libraries are separate. They're separate places, separate institutions. There's nowhere where everything is under one roof of all this rare material, unbelievably valued, except for this place. It's really pretty extraordinary. So for someone like me, uh, I can get more done in the same amount of time here than anywhere else, including even in Moscow at this point. So that's uh, a real tribute. Now, I don't want to make it seem like 
uh, everything in the book is a revelation. The archives revealed many things, but not, for example, that Stalin was really Mother Teresa, <laughs> or that the Soviet regime was really a parliamentary democracy. Many things we knew already, for example, Robert Conquest, as you know, many decades here at the Hoover with spectacular, important books, essentially making the Hoover the place or one of the places in the whole world for the study of Stalinism. And so we want to remember that even though there's a, a whole literature that comes after him, that not everything has been overturned and that some people understood the Stalin phenomenon a long time ago and they weren't necessarily in the majority. So, of course, Stalin's personal archive, his primary personal archive, was not declassified till 1999. And so, therefore, Professor Conquest was not able to read that material for his main books. But, of course, that's not his fault. You gladly would have read it had they made it available to him. The police and the military archives, which we began to get through Dmitry Volkogonov's papers, 55 microfilms of which are across the courtyard, that stuff also came in the late 1990s primarily. And then there's been a whole lot of stuff in the 2000s that we didn't have before. And so I'm the beneficiary of this material, uh, more than half of which I've read here at, at Hoover uh, during uh, the course of the 11 years that I've been working on volumes one and two. So it's just, I mean, it's obvious maybe, but I thought I'd have to make that point since I am here, that this is really a world historical special collection and it's not matched anywhere else. There are great libraries. The New York Public Library, where I did a lot of work, has an unbelievable historic collection. Harvard Widener Library, the Library of Congress, but none of them have an archive attached to them. And sometimes the Hoover has things that they don't have. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Um, so I can't, I'm not gonna give you the whole book. I'm going to give you three cuts into the book and then a few episodes that I think are potentially interesting and then we'll have Q&A. Uh, I know some of you want to talk about the current events in Russia and certainly a lot of Stalin stuff is related to the current news. For example, Stalin was the first one to make that famous comment, I don't know how the footballs were deflated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, given his level of credibility, they took him at his word, and they never found out. Uh, so we'll get to the current stuff, if you'd like, in the Q&A, uh, but um, obviously there are many, many parallels, and it, it, very worthy conversation. Okay, so now, the book uh, essentially uh, follows a method that I've had in all of my work, which is tripart method. The first is uh, geopolitics, or state-to-state -state competition. The second is the formation and operation of institutions. And the third is ideas, ideology. So on the geopolitics and the state-to-state -state competition piece, so sort of very briefly, we think about it this way. Uh, the British and the French had a more than 100-year war for global supremacy. And surprisingly, the British won, such that in 1815, the British were the supreme global power by far. The French had a larger state and a larger population. It was a little bit surprising that the British won. But nonetheless, the British were better 
They had a smaller state, but it was more efficient. They invented customs. They invented the national debt. They invented national banking. They were a very impressive fiscal military state. They won, and they were globally supreme. By 1815, defeat of Napoleon, there was no power that could touch the British. By the way, for those of you who are in, interested in the empirical history of shrinking of government, the British are the only case in world history that has shrunken government for uh, an entire generation. After they defeated Napoleon, the British government, the British state shrank. They got a smaller government on purpose by state policy. Uh, there was a peace dividend and other. There was a classically liberal ideology about freedom and small government, and it was very effective. It's the only case in world history that that's ever happened by government policy, not by accident. Anyway, so the British are globally supreme, but lo and behold, history moves, and there were two ruptures in world history. In the 1870s, Bismarck unified Germany. The Stalin book begins with uh, Bismarck and his unification of Germany. Uh, 1870s, a spectacular story. All of a sudden, new German power on the continent, most dynamic power. The 1870s, also the Meiji Restoration in Japan, which is not the creation of a new state like Germany, but is the consolidation of the Japanese nation, followed by tremendous dynamism in the economy and a forward or outward or aggressive foreign policy, depending on how you define it. So you have two new powers in the British-dominated world, the Germans and the Japanese, both of which are launched in the 1870s, which happened to be the decade that Stalin was born. So that's the world he's born into, and that's the world he's going to shape. There are other geopolitical considerations that are, uh, I should mention. First, it's the decline of China, the Qing. Right during the British rise, the Qing overextend themselves. They're, uh, Expenditures exceed revenues by a factor of 10. They go broke, and China goes into a decline. That's done now. We look like we're out of that epoch, but that happened to be the epoch that coincided with Stalin's life and with the rise of British power. Another thing that happened is the uh, U.S. Civil War. The North won against the South. This was another rupture in world history because instead of a slaveholding economy as the dominant producer of wealth in the United States. We had a different model, a triumph, which was railroads, manufacturing, uh, without slavery. And so the United States is looming in the world system already by the 1880s. Its historical economic data is not that uh, accurate sometimes, but it looks like the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world already in the 1880s. That's in dispute, but certainly by 1900, the U.S. has the largest economy. It's not yet a global player. It doesn't run the world system. The British do that. 90% of global trade is in pound sterling. The British lay all the undersea cables. The British have all the shipping. It's the British-dominated world. The U.S., however, is colossal and looming, and that's going to come into play mostly in Volume 2 and Volume 3 as I go forward. So you have a British-dominated world, rise of German power, rise of Japanese power, decline of China, as I said, and then the U.S. looming over the world system. So this is Geopolitics 101. There are more nuances, but this is, as I say, the world Stalin is born into and he's going to shape. Now you'll notice that the two new powers are flank the Russian Empire. Germany and Japan are on either side of Russia. And so the rupture in world history into the British-dominated world affects the Russian Empire as much, if not more, than any other country. The Russians are going to go to war with the Japanese, 1904-05, the Russo-Japanese War. That's in the book. It's going to be the first time that a, 
a non-European power is going to beat a European power in war. It's very significant. There's also going to be World War I. They're going to go to war against Germany, against German power, which of course is a, is a mistake and you end up with Bolshevism as a result. So anyway, so this story of geopolitics is important because Stalin sh doesn't shape the world as he sees fit. He's born into this world. He has to deal with these very significant powers and state-to-state -state rivalry, state-to-state competition. He is then going to try to figure this out. He invents, as I describe in the book, a Soviet version or a Marxist version of geopolitics very early on. A very detailed analysis of Stalin's thinking on world affairs already in the mid-1920s and how he's going to try to deal with the fact that they have what's called capitalist encirclement. If you seize power as an avowedly socialist regime in the capitalist world, you've encircled yourself. And that's, of course, what the regime does. And then he tries to deal with that, and everyone is an enemy, and this type of uh, structural paranoia, as it were, of the regime is built on top of the geopolitical system, the structural paranoia. Okay, so that's the geopolitics piece. I can talk much, much more about that. I can talk about uh, how pieces broke off from the Tsarist Empire, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, Poland, right? These became independent states, and they were obviously hostile to the Soviet Union, both because it was Russian imperialism, their former colonial power in their eyes, and also because of the leftist regime, the communist regime that's in power. So these then become, in the eyes of the Soviet regime, and especially Stalin, launching pads for anti-Soviet activity. So the forward pieces of the former Russian Empire are now turned the other way and pointed at the Soviet Union. This also has a tremendous effect on them. So anyway, that's the geopolitics story. Let's talk a little bit about the institutions and how they work. So the book has a, a long discussion of how the Tsarist regime was dysfunctional and why, and why the Tsarist regime eventually will collapse and be unsuccessful. There's a chapter on Pyotr Stolypin, the prime minister, 1906 to 1911, uh, greatest Russian statesman, no doubt, in most people's eyes. And there's a discussion about the, what happens after the destruction in 1917-18 of the Russian state and how a new autocracy, a new state is built inside of this. War, revolution, and civil war produces anarchy. It produces really no state. In 1918, after the Bolshevik coup of October 1917, there is no state whatsoever. There are four guys in a room writing all sorts of decrees which are going out into the ether. There's absolutely nothing there. They have no levers of power. You know, sometimes the piano goes. I don't know if you have an old piano in your house and have to pay a piano tutor from Brooklyn to come and fix it. <laughs> but sometimes you hit the keys and nothing happens, and you hit them and hit them and hit them again, and you keep hitting them harder as if that's going to help. Well, that was the Bolshevik regime in 1918, and so there's a chapter on the Dada-esque quality of this regime. It so happened that Lenin and the Dada Cafe were on the same street in Zurich. <laughs> and I then elongate that story into the first year of the regime. But anyway, they do rebuild the state, and that's a complicated story, how states are built not from scratch, but from the shards of the old regime. But they don't build it always intentionally. The, uh, the outcome is not always intentional. We attribute a lot to Lenin and Lenin's thinking and Lenin's writings. 
But let's think about how the Soviet state is built, comes into being just one deep and important angle on the institutional question. So the, they inherit many officials and officers and teachers from the old regime. So let's say you need military expertise and somebody served in the Tsarist army, took an oath to the Tsar and knows something about tactics and campaigns. And they're willing to serve on the red side to bring the state back together. And you say, okay, we'll take your expertise. But they took an oath to the Tsar and you're a communist regime. And you're thinking, can we trust them? And the answer is we're going to put somebody shadowing them, a watchdog called a commissar, who's going to watch them to make sure that they don't stray politically. We're going to borrow their expertise and we're going to keep them under surveillance. There's going to be an expert and a red official, a commissar, and they're going to be parallel in a watchdog-like fashion. And they do this throughout the whole army. This is where the Soviet model of the state comes from. And now let's say you were an official in the finance ministry under the Tsar. And so you know something about banking or about currency or about foreign accounts. Well, they're probably, if you're going to volunteer, they'll take you into the regime. But are they going to trust you? Of course not. They're going to put party cell inside the finance carceria to watch closely over you. Let's say you're a school teacher and you know something about geography or mathematics or whatever it might be. But you, once again, you were educated under the czar and you took an oath to serve and so they want to borrow you as a school teacher but they're not trusting your politics so in every single institution they created expertise but shadowed by party cells commissars watchdogs and this party state this dualism this redundancy will outlast the fact that eventually the military officers will be communist party members the teachers will be Communist Party members. The state officials will be Communist Party members. In other words, everybody will eventually be born, trained, schooled inside the Soviet Union and members of the Communist Party. But the party state commissar watchdog model, which arose in the heat of the revolution and civil war, is retained all the way to the end. So therefore, there's a party archive and a state archive. And they're exactly parallel, and they're in separate buildings, and they're each as vast as the other. And it's crazy, because if you go to the finance commissariat, they have two meetings. One meeting, the officials talk about finance, and the second meeting, it's the party cell, and eventually it's the same exact people, and they talk about finance. And so there are two meetings to talk about the same thing in every single Soviet institution all the way through to 1991 and the collapse. And this redundancy was discussed that it was a little bit crazy later on and they thought about doing something about it, but of course reform is much easier to talk about than to enact. So the party cell, the party state dualism, this model of the Soviet state, this watchdog underground revolutionary movement that is watching the expertise of the states eventually becomes the expertise of the states but continues in this surveillance watchdog mode. That is something I discuss and explain in the institutional side of the tripartite method I'm talking about. So then they're gonna, there's a Bolshevik dictatorship and Stalin's gonna build a personal dictatorship inside the dictatorship. So institutions and the nature of institutions are going to have a very big role because 
Institutions shape what the actors can and can't do. If you've ever worked in an institution, in a bureaucracy, in an in a organization, in an enterprise, or in a university, as an administrator, you know that there's an institutional culture, set of procedures, ways of doing things, and so institutions matter. You cannot reduce things just to the individual's will. Same thing as with the geopolitics. Okay, now ideas, ideology. So um, it should be pretty obvious, but we had a big fight for 40 years about this in the profession, and unfortunately we're still fighting about this. And that is that the, these guys were communists. They were communists, and that's what motivated them. That's how they thought. That's how they talked. And the most important revelation from the secret archives is that when you peel it back and you see them behind closed doors, not expecting anybody to ever learn what they're saying, they speak and think the same way as their propaganda. Finance capital, international bourgeoisie, kulaks, poor peasants, enemies, class enemies. This is the vocabulary. This is what makes up the secret most documents. They are communists. That's why they got into this movement in the first place, and they're going to transform the world in communist fashion. So without ideas, without a discussion of ideas, you cannot make sense of this phenomenon. Absolutely not. Yes, ideas alone are not decisive. They don't determine everything that happens. That's why there's geopolitics, state-to-state -state relations. That's why there's institutions. right? But without the ideas, you are nowhere. And so when they are arguing, behind closed doors, I say, when they are arguing, they have, a, they have blinders on. They have a narrow worldview, and the options for policy are narrowed on the basis of their commitment to communist ideals. I'm going to now give you an example to drive this point home. We have a debate in our field about the 1920s so-called new economic policy. The Bolsheviks, under Lenin's leadership in 1920-21, discovered that they had no food and that the whole country was in revolt, that they couldn't conquer the peasantry, and so they grudgingly conceded market relations in the countryside. The decrees are very grudging. You know, you can sell to the market on Tuesday afternoons, but no other day. You can sell onions, but you can't sell potatoes. And of course, none of these decrees were enforceable, because if you give a little bit of market legalization, you're going to have a total market legalization. And so there are thousands and thousands of decrees legalizing the market that eventually become known as the new economic policy. There's no single decree called the new economic policy. And when the policy was announced, it was not called the new economic policy. That came later. Anyway, they grudgingly allow this uh, private market behavior in the countryside throughout the 1920s. But they debate about whether they should keep this up, what they should do about it going forward. And this debate, I believe, has been slightly mischaracterized. You see, because nobody, there was not a single top Bolshevik in the Central Committee who was in favor of markets and private property. There are no documents. I've seen every single extant document of the 1920s internal debates that has not, you know, that has come down to us. There's not a single document with a top Bolshevik of any kind, including the famous Nikolai Bukharin, embracing the market permanently. Capitalism is okay. 
we, we're here to have markets, private property, and capitalism in the countryside. No such document, not a single person. What was the debate actually about? And why did Stalin launch collectivization in the late 1920s, and which is how this book culminates? I should say that the decision to collectivize agriculture in 1928, the culmination of the book, it's like the movie where there's a murder, but you don't see the murder. You just maybe hear the gunshot, and the murder takes place off screen. So there's no description of collectivization in the book. There's just the, the murder happens, the decision happens, and then uh, that's, uh, the de details are in volume two. But anyway, <laughs> it's the decision that's really important because of the fact that he could take this decision and impose it and enslave 100 million peasants. It's not an easy thing to do. So the, what's the debate about? The debate is about this. The new economic policy has produced a recovery. They no longer have the famine, right? The war, revolution, and civil war has destroyed everything. No railroads, no factories, right? No harvest. And the new economic policy, mid-20s through late-20s, they have this resuscitation. And now they're back to the level they were in 1913. That's where they are in 1927. They're back to where they were. They've lost more than a decade. And so here they are, back to this level. But of course, they have what the regime is calling kulaks. Now kulaks, what is a kulak, a rich peasant? What is that? Let's say you had three cows. You worked really hard. You killed yourself to work. And now you have six cows. Guess what you are? You're a kulak. You're a rich peasant. You're an exploiter. You're a bloodsucker. You are the class enemy. And you say to yourself, but isn't it better to have six cows instead of three cows? Isn't it better to have more grain than less grain? Well, yeah, the regime kept saying it was better to have more grain than less grain and six cows instead of three cows, but they didn't want private individual peasant households to aggrandize because that was a kulak, a rich peasant, an exploiter, a bloodsucker because those kulaks who had six cows were hiring labor to work with them on the farm and that was wage slavery, hired labor. And so they're debating back and forth and Stalin says we're gonna, we can't do this because we need the harvest to get bigger we need to modernize agriculture, but we can't do it like America does it. We can't do it with Kulak farms. We can't have one farmer who hires the whole village and the next village over, and they all work for the one farmer. That would be a capitalist market-style system. And we're a socialist system. We're building socialism and eventually communism. Right? Communist Party is feudalism, capitalism, socialism, communism. That's why it's called the Communist Party. They're going to go from capitalism to socialism and then from socialism to communism. And the other guy, Alexei Rykov, who was the number two person in the regime and a really important one, a tremendous figure, Rykov says, we, if we do that, if we get rid of the kulaks and we collectivize agriculture, we can only do it with coercion. You see, because collective farms in 1928 are only 1% 1 of the arable land. 1% of the arable land. And the average household is 16 to 17, uh, the average collective farm 16 to 17 households. Who's in voluntary collectivization? The farmers who can't farm by themselves. The losers. They can't do it by themselves, and so they band together in these pathetic, tiny 
so-called collective farms that don't get much done. They can't even get the grain to use to distill for the moonshine. That's how bad they are. They're stealing moonshine in the night from the other peasants. So these, that's voluntary collectivization. That's voluntary socialism in the village. So Rikov says to Stalin, you can only do this by coercion. And if you coerce, it'll be catastrophic. We'll lose everything. All the gains of the new economic policy, all the resuscitation, the fact that we got back finally to 1913 levels, right? the breathing spell, the fact that we don't have famine anymore. If you try to do this, A, you won't collectivize successfully, and B, you'll have famine and worse. Right? So that's what Rikoff doesn't say. You know what? The peasants, let them be capitalists. Let the kulaks aggrandize. Let's have wage slavery in the villages. Fine. He never says that. He says you, to Stalin, you'll ruin everything if you try, especially right now. And Stalin says to him, you don't have the courage of your convictions. Are you a communist or not? Are we going to have socialism in the countryside? Or are we going to allow capitalism to grow in the countryside and bury us? And they have this debate back and forth. That's the debate. And Stalin overrides everyone's opposition, imposes this collectivization. It's an unbelievable story of willpower as well as ideology. And Rikoff is more than right. Everything he said happens. It's catastrophic. They lose more than half their animals. Five to seven million people die in a famine. The regime itself is destabilized. Everything Rikoff predicted of trying to forcefully collectivize comes true in spades and then more. But Stalin doesn't stop. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't say, I made a mistake. He doesn't say, let's undo this. He goes all the way to the end until there are 99.9% collective farms in the country because he's a communist. The old way of thinking was that Stalin was doing this solely to consolidate his dictatorship. Okay, so let's examine this proposition. Now I've told you that state-to-state -state competition, geopolitics is important. I've told you that institutions are important. I've told you that ideas are important. Now we have personality here. We have a certain type of iron will personality that's in combination with these other factors. So people ask me, when did Stalin become a dictator? It's a great question. And I said, yeah, I'd like to know that. I'm going to look at the material with that in mind. And so there's a debate, you know, he became a dictator only when this happened, and only when that happened, and only at this time period, and only later with this. And so I said, okay, let's just go forward instead of backward. Let's go into the sources as deep as we can and see who's making decisions and who's consulting or not consulting and how the thing is operating and what the geography of the regime is. So in April 1922, Lenin creates a new post called General Secretary of the Communist Party, April 1922. And it's clear that Lenin did this. We have document in his hand. He has the name Stalin after the post, General Secretary of the Party. Plus, it's clear from other secret documents that Stalin is already doing the job de facto for at least a year before Lenin officially formalizes it with the post General Secretary of the Communist Party. And so creates this post for him, April 1922. Guess what happens in May 1922? 
the number one leader of the revolution, the head of the government, the guy everybody recognizes as the number one, who's just created this deputy, general secretary of the Communist Party, in April 1922. In May 1922, Lenin has a massive stroke. So there you go. That's the answer to the question, when does Stalin become a dictator? Now, the general secretary of the party, what is this job? Well, there's only one. Everything's a secret because there are enemies all over the place, hyper-secrecy. There's only one part of the regime that has the cipher codes, general secretary of the party. There's only one part of the regime that's allowed to communicate with the embassies abroad, general secretary of the party. There's only one part of the regime that liaisons with the secret police, general secretary of the party. One part of the regime that liaisons with the military, general secretary of the party. One part of the regime only that can send out information to the provinces as well as abroad, and one part that can receive it, general secretary of the party. And so this guy would have had to be a special character. He inherits this position. The top guy has a stroke and gets incapacitated, and he says, you know, it would be unfair if I became a dictator right now. It'd be unfair if I monopolized this position and cut everybody else out of the information loop. I think they should be running the secret police, not me. I think they should be running the military, not me. I think they should gather the information, and I shouldn't have a monopoly over all the information of the regime. Right? Well, actually, he doesn't do that. <laughs> what he does instead is he enacts the job of general secretary of the party, and he's in power. And already in 1923, the, the rest of the Politburo, they're crying their eyes out. This guy, Stalin, he's taking decisions without consulting us. Already in 1923. General Secretary of the Party, April 1922, Lenin stroke, May 1922. Now he inherits the potential for a personal dictatorship. He has to build it, and build it he does. Build it like crazy. And so we. The first letter I found of, between Stalin and this famous guy in the secret police named Genrich Jagoda, who's the number three or four person in the secret police in 1922 and is going to eventually become the number one person. Stalin initiates a correspondence with this guy. They begin to correspond because Stalin is the general secretary of the party. And so he's got the number three, number four guy in the police watching over the police on his behalf. The number one guy only reports to Stalin in the first place, but now the number three and the number four, number four guy, depending how you measure it, is watching everybody else in the police. But this guy, the number three and the number four guy, he's a, a wheeler dealer, what they used to call a fartsovchik in the late Soviet Union, commerçant in French, right? He basically, uh, you know, French perfume, whatever he can get imported. This is how, and then he gives it to his subordinates. He loves this kind of stuff. He loves luxury goods. And so Stalin is having someone carefully watch this guy, who's his main agent, to get dirt on him. Then it turns out that this guy's not really a tradecraft guy. He's not a spy. He's number three, four in the secret police, but he doesn't have any tradecraft. He can do forgery you know, that kind of stuff, but he can't infiltrate organizations. So there's this other guy, Frauci, and Frauci's father is a Swiss cheesemaker. And Frauci takes the name Artuzov, and he, he founds Soviet counterintelligence. There's this archive that's bigger than five Walmarts in Omsk, Siberia, called the Counterintelligence Archive. They still won't let me in. But, <laughs> but anyway, Artuzov founds counterintelligence, and he hates Yagoda. He looks down on Yagoda because Yagoda is a commerçant, 
and Frauci is a counterintelligence tradecraft operative. So lo and behold, Stalin not only recruits somebody to watch over the secret police from the inside, he recruits somebody to watch over the guy he's, who's watching over. And the channels are coming to him in the general. This is already 1922-23. It's just spectacular. So that's the story that you get from the secret archives. Now, Stalin is not a genius. He makes many mistakes. He has no understanding of fascism. Italian fascism, he thinks, is, a, is from finance capital. That's the vocabulary he uses. Finance capital has produced Italian fascism, right? Because he's got these Marxist blinders. So don't get me wrong. Stalin's talents are of a certain kind. If you needed somebody, for example, today to run General Electric, you wouldn't pick him. <laughs> certain things he could do as the CEO there, but other things would be considered uh, underhanded. But if you wanted someone to build a personal dictatorship inside a dictatorship, yeah, this, is, this guy looks good. And he's got tremendous energy, unbelievable diligence. He works really hard. And he goes out and he creates this personal dictatorship inside the dictatorship. So that's the answer to the question of when is Stalin a dictator. He inherits the potential already in the spring of 1922. And he just builds and builds. They got, there are all these Politburo documents. They have a discussion, they have an argument, then there's a protocol recording the decision. And then he goes back to his office. And his office is the one, first of all, that wrote the protocol about the decision. And it's very interesting, sometimes they get written a certain way. Like he loses the debate, but he doesn't lose the debate. Sometimes he goes back to his office and he says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to implement this. And so it doesn't get implemented. Sometimes he'll be sitting at a meeting and they'll be talking and arguing. And Stalin said, oh, you know, by the way, four months ago I put down a revolt in the Caucasus. And they all look up and said, what? Four months ago you did what? Yeah, well, there was a revolt in the Caucasus and I put it down. I forgot to mention it. <laughs> And if he hadn't mentioned it at that meeting, they would have no way of finding out. So once you get inside the regime like this, you begin to see the mechanisms of power, how they work, including this liaisoning with the military, with the secret police, and all of that kind of stuff. Right? So to walk into Stalin's wing, you need a separate pass. So there's a record of who walked into Stalin's wing, and how many times, for example, Trotsky was in the Communist Party Secretariat building once. And then there's, of course, Stalin can walk in any building he wants because he's the general secretary of the party and the secretariat has oversight, supervision over this. So he wants to walk in in the secret police building, he doesn't need a pass. He wants to call the secret police over to the secretariat for a meeting, he doesn't need anybody's permission. The general secretary of the party has these prerogatives. All right, I'll say one or two more things, and then maybe we'll go to questions, because obviously this could go on for the full 747 pages. <laughs> so far, it looks like I haven't lost too many of you. Uh, when you teach undergraduates, you have to come out into the audience and tell them to stop buying the sweatpants on J. Crew <laughs> during the lecture. I'm sure anybody with a laptop in an undergraduate lecture at $55,000 a year, sitting there doing their Facebook profile update and comparing prices of the sweatpants and stuff. So I've now learned to walk out into the audience. <laughs> and then you walk out and you go like this and quickly they change the screen. <laughs> As if, duh. 
I'm an idiot, right? Yes. <laughs> it's so much fun teaching them, especially when you do morning classes on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Some, there may be some children and grandchildren you know, of the audience at Princeton University. They are very, very fine students. <laughs> very, very fine. Very impressive young people, especially the ones in my classes. All right, so let's finish up. Uh, that's Stalin's book on Lenin. You see the beautiful iconography, the original iconography of the 20s. That's Stalin's office, right there. That whole wing. That's old square number four. That's the Commissariat of Agriculture. I'll talk about the slides when I'm done. That's the secret police building, the original. Okay, so um, let's do one more thing. The sociopath. Stalin the sociopath, right? Another question I got a lot was, when did this guy become a sociopath? Let's face it, you know, a lot of people died. I don't think it was an accident. There's pretty much sociopathic behavior here, right? But when? And so this is an, a di another difficult question that you need to, you know, forget about what you've heard so far and start from scratch with the materials. We have a huge number of sources where somebody survived, got into the emigration, and then 40 years later they remembered you know what, when we were in school together, me and Stalin, and he was just a kid, he said right there that he wanted to kill all the children and eat them. <laughs> I remember this now. I'm 75 and living in Paris, and I'm on medication, but certainly I remember that like it was yesterday. <laughs> he said he wanted to kill all the children and eat them. We have a lot of this. We have a lot of these reminiscences after Stalin's murderous terror of 1936, 37, 38, which is in volume two. Everybody remembered what a sociopath he was when he was little. And some of those stories could be true. I don't dispute all of them, but I don't use them. Instead, I decided to look in real time. What did they say about Stalin in 1921, in 1922, in 1923? You know, as well as 1908 and 1909, but in real time. What do they say and record right then about him? And so I'm going to tell you, give you a little detail about an episode that I think is important. It's a well-known episode, but I don't think uh, people fully appreciated uh, the, uh, the importance of the episode. And that is the so-called uh, cave meeting, the so-called cave meeting. I'm going to have to give you a little bit of background. It's going to take a few minutes, but I think it's going to illuminate the sociopath stuff. Um, so in December 1922 and January 1923, Lenin allegedly dictated his last will and testament, which characterized six different possible successors in December 1922, according to the usual story, and in January 1923, he had a second dictation which called for Stalin's removal as general secretary. January 1923, Stalin's removal as general secretary. And there's a tremendous amount. This is the core story about how Stalin is a usurper and is not Lenin's legitimate successor. It's built up by the Trotskyite line. It's in the historiography and sort of probably seven out of ten, maybe eight out of ten historians still hold to this, maybe even more than that. Now you can't usurp a usurpation that easily, right? The Bolshevik regime is the usurpation. 
They stole power. The idea that Stalin stole something that wasn't his is a little late in the game. Right? So the Lenin regime is not a legitimate regime. It is a usurpation. So that's the first point. The second point is that whatever Lenin said or didn't say, why is that the answer to the legitimacy of who's in power? Who decided that Lenin can determine? Right? Can I just name anybody to be in power and, and that's it? No, of course, there must be some procedural way, potentially, even in authoritarian regimes they have procedures. So anyway, so it's the story of Stalin being the illegitimate heir to Lenin, having usurped power when really Trotsky was a better one or anybody else was better or whatever it might be, right? This Lenin Last Testament. So you go to the archive and you say, I'd like to read the Last Testament. And guess what? No document. That's the first problem. No document. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? Well, there were all these documents of Lenin's dictation which are handwritten and in shorthand by the secretary. There's a lot of them. So, for example, you know, you don't write the whole word, you write only part of the word because you're taking dictation, right? Somebody's speaking and you're writing it down and then you fill it out later, right? There are a few documents like that of Lenin's dictation after his strokes and his illness. But there's none for this big one. That's a little bit suspicious, huh? There's only a typescript. Well, and the typescript changes over time. The original typescript doesn't say testament on it. The document that says testament on it is in the Party Control Commission, and it was distributed by the Trotskyites in early 1923, and they inserted the word testament on it. And then Dzerzhinsky got a copy of it, the head of the secret police, and called the Trotskyites in and reprimanded them for distrib illegally distributing this document, which they added the word test. And other things were added or subtracted to this document over time, the typescript, without the original. Now, it could be a real document. Lenin could have dictated this. Don't get me wrong. It's just we don't have any evidence. Moreover, we have the doctor's journals where the doctor says, you know, paralyzed, can't move, can't speak. <laughs> It's a problematic document, right? <laughs> we got lots of the doctor's testimony. It was all in the super secret, most secret archives. It's now come to light. And there's other circumstantial evidence. The story about the Last Testament was that Lenin dictated it to be opened only after his death. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, in May 1923, he was still alive. And his wife, Krupskaya, turned the document over the supposed dictation, to Zinoviev. She knew Zinoviev from Zurich. Zinoviev was with Lenin in Zurich. In May 1923, after they had a party congress, the first one Lenin didn't attend, and Trotsky was defeated, and Stalin was victorious, and boom, out comes this document. Talking about how Stalin is not that good. In May 1923 to Zinoviev, and nothing happens. This is supposedly dictation from December 1922, supposedly to be opened only after Lenin's dead. He doesn't die till January 1924. Nothing happens, and so you think, okay, boom, lo and behold, another document comes out. But she only gives it to Zinoviev in June 1923. And it's the document calling for Stalin's removal. Now, if it was dictation from this January 1923, why didn't she hand them both together in May 1923? Why did she wait till the first one bombed to hand the second one in? Calling now, it's a more radical document, calling for Stalin's removal. 
And you say, that's interesting. So then, Zinoviev, who's the receiver of this document, calling for Stalin's removal, he's a very ambitious character, Zinoviev. He's pushing and shoving and dying to give the political report at the party congress in place of the ill Lenin, to be seen as Lenin's successor. And Stalin exceeds, and Zinoviev does the political report at the party congress. So you can't say he's not ambitious. He's not ambitious, and he's holding an alleged dictation from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. So what do you think you're going to do? I know what I would do, even if I weren't as ambitious as Zinoviev. Moreover, what if Stalin is a sociopath? What if Stalin is dangerous to the revolution and dangerous to you personally? What if you've observed him closely as of summer of 1923 and you're thinking, this guy, I mean, he's trouble. And you're ambitious and you got a document from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. What are you going to do? Especially if this guy's a sociopath, right? So Zinoviev has a meeting in a cave with uh, three other people. And it's in Kislevosk in the south, Kislevadi, or um, acidic waters. It's the sulfur bath area. And they, they meet in a cave, and they come up with this scheme to implant Zinoviev in the secretariat alongside Stalin, and one other guy besides Zinoviev. That's the reaction to the Lenin dictation calling for Stalin's removal. Now, if Stalin's a sociopath, you're going to implant yourself next to him, right? How's that going to work? Why not just do what Lenin seems to be saying and sack Stalin? Zinoviev has the power to call a meeting, hold a piece of paper up, Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. How are you going to get out of that, right? But no, he thinks up this scheme, this crazy scheme. And to me, that of just implant. See, this shows that Stalin is already the dictator. The letters that Zinoviev are writing to Moscow are all about how this SOB Stalin keeps doing all this stuff behind our back when we're in the Politburo. What is this? And so he wants to go in the secretariat where Stalin is exercising the power. That's, th that's the idea. So he writes a letter to this other top official named Lev Kamenev, who's back in Moscow, also working beside Stalin. Kamenev is also an ambitious character. He's also not naive. He's known Stalin since 1903, so this is 20 years now he's known Stalin. In 1904, Kamenev gave Stalin the Russian translation of Machiavelli's The Prince. <laughs> the 1869 Russian translation that's in Stalin's library is from Kamenev. So you're not going to talk about naivete here. Instead, this guy's an intriguer. He knows what he's doing. He gets Zinoviev's letter to implant Zinoviev in a secretariat. If Kamenev thinks that Stalin is a sociopath, and nobody knows Stalin better at the top than Kamenev at this point. What's he going to do? There's a letter from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. Kamenev says to Zinoviev, you're exaggerating. There's no problem here. Stalin's here hard at work. You're down there in Kislevotsk on vacation. You're on holiday and you're complaining. We're not doing anything. We're not putting in these people in the secretariat. We're not doing this crazy idea. So he has no sense that Stalin is a sociopath, Lev Kamenev. So here are the people, the closest to Stalin inside the regime, right at the very top, with the alleged dictation from Lenin, which the wife turned over mysteriously, and they don't try to remove him. Now, this is only one episode. It can't be definitive. You need more evidence, and believe me, the book has 
evidence. There are 4,000 endnotes to original primary sources in the book. So there is evidence in the book in addition to this cave episode of summer of 1923, but you see what I'm getting at. If you're looking forward in real time, what they're saying about Stalin is different from what they're going to say retrospectively if they survive 30 or 40 years later. So he doesn't look like a sociopath yet. And this, as I'm going to conclude here, this opens up to a bigger story about how you write biography. Now let's say somebody's a great painter. Picasso, or pick your favorite. Or let's say a great novelist, right? I don't know, James Joyce, whatever. Or a great poet, or whatever. Transcendent works of art. And then some biographer comes along, and you start reading, and it says, yeah, well, had a complicated relationship with his mother. Had a really weird relationship with his father. Had some kooky mistress thing going on on the side. And you say to yourself, that can't be. Because I got all that, and, and I, I can't paint like Picasso, and, and I can't write like James Joyce. You know, there's like no way. There's, I mean, there's got to be some other explanation for the art and novel and the poetry, right? And so you reject those kind of uh, psychobiographies, the reductionism of the psychology. You know, there's some titillating stories and whatever, and as I write in the book, you'll excuse me, but you know, Stalin had a penis and he used it, right? Okay. There is that aspect. That's uh, an aspect of life. But I don't think that's what this is about. Moreover, there's, there's not even any evidence that the father beat him except for one memoir, which was written in the emigration, that the father might have beat him. There's evidence that the mother beat Stalin uh, just as much as there is that the father beat him. But like I said, my mother beat me, my father beat me, and I have yet to kill 10 million people. <laughs> so you have to think about it this way. Stalin's dictatorship is a work of art. It's not a work of art in any moral sense. I don't share the values. I'm not impressed with Bolshevik ideology. I don't like communism. Right? We're not going to talk at all about a work of art in any positive moral sense. But if you talk about how much power was accumulated and how much power was exercised, this is the gold standard of dictatorship. There is no dictatorship that has greater accumulation and exercise of power than this. For better or for worse, right? So this is a work of art, gold standard of dictatorship, and therefore, you know, maybe he fought with the mother or fought with the father or whatever it might be, but I don't think that's going to explain it. What explains Stalin is the politics. It's building and running a personal dictatorship. Do you know what it's like to have supreme power of life and death over 200 million people? Do you think that might have had an effect on his character? That kind of power, what it's like to exercise that kind of power? Moreover, running foreign policy, trying to uphold Russian power in the world, you think that job might have had an effect on him? Of course it had an effect on him. And so the story I tell of Stalin's personality is not the personality produces the politics. Duh. It's the politics is what produces the personality. It's the paranoid politics of Bolshevism on top of the experience of building and exercising a personal dictatorship that helped create. Now, are there demons in there? For sure there are demons in there. But his colleagues didn't see him. Not as of summer of 1923 and not in 1924 and not in 1925 and not in 1926 either, right? So 
Anyway, one could go on in this vein, but let me, let me uh, end here by saying that, um, you know, this is a story not just about Stalin, it's about Russian power in the world. And managing Russian power in the world is a really complicated, difficult proposition. Very complicated. This is not a justification or an excuse for anybody's behavior. But if you're thinking, you know, I'll take the Atlantic, the Pacific, Canada, and Mexico to get started as a superpower, as my geography, and somebody else is going to get, you know, Hitler's Germany, Hirohito's Japan, the Muslim Middle East, and, other, and the Arctic, frozen Arctic on top, which is the direction. Their geography is going to be different and it's going to deeply influence. So the, there are a lot of factors here besides personality. The singularity of Stalin's personality is the decision for and going all the way, the iron determination of collectivization. Right? I don't think anybody else was capable of doing that through all the famine and death, starvation, murder, uprisings. Right? He was capable of that. I think the regime doesn't manage to collectivize if Stalin had died, which is the final chapter of the book, if Stalin had died. But that doesn't mean that everything is determined by Stalin. There's a whole lot of stuff, huge structures of history that are at play here, huge forces, the global price of commodities, the global price of grain, right? the institutions of the Tsarist Empire, the institutions of the that come out of the revolution as we were discussing. The rise of Germany, the way Germany behaves in the 1920s, the Versailles Treaty, right? There's a huge number of structural factors that are larger than Stalin's personality. So you shouldn't get the impression from this talk that everything is created by or done by Stalin or that he initiates everything or that he's so brilliant or anything like that, right? He's a certain kind of person not accidentally produced by this culture who then gets in this position, once again, not fully accidentally, although there are some accidents, and then has this huge impact on history, right? And, uh, but then that also has a huge impact on him. Anyway, thank you for your attention. I don't know if we're interested, should I do a little of the photographs? That's the uh, opening of the Duma, the first parliament. That's Nicholas II. That's the uh, interior minister, Pyotr Dornavo. He saved the Tsarist regime, unfortunately, in 1906. That's Stolypin. That's Nicholas II in Kiev. He's about to be assassinated in 1911. That's Stolypin's dacha. Uh, they bombed it, and they killed one of his children, but he survived that blast. That's the royalty of Europe that goes to war. Queen Victoria, Wilhelm II. That's Alexei the hemophiliac. He's drove, driven around by his naval attendant because he has a hemophilia. If he bumps into something, he bleeds to death. That's the house Stalin's born in before Beria puts the sarcophagus over it. That's Stalin's father, we think, but we aren't sure. Besolomanaza. That's for sure Stalin's mother, Keke Geladze. Uh, that's the guy, Ignatashvili, the inn owner, who was the richest guy in Stalin's hometown, Gori, who paid for his education. This is the false photograph. First photograph of Stalin, he's in the middle in the top row. Look at the attitude. He's about 10, 11 years old. This Stalin's second from the left on top. This is the Tiflis Seminary. He almost completed his seminary education. That's the seminary building. The only photograph, this is the first time you're seeing it. Seminary building. That's Lado Ketsavelli, the first Georgian Marxist who initiates Stalin into Marxism. 
That's Stalin's cell in the prison. That's the revolutionary underground. Pretty romantic, huh? That's the, um, the observatory in Tiflis. Stalin's only legal job was a weatherman. He recorded the temperature in Tiflis for a while before he joined the underground and ran from the police. That's Stalin's first wife who died. This is from the Georgian KGB archive. That's Stalin over there. That's the Baku police photograph, famous one of Stalin. 1910, it's misstated in the other books. This is Sarajevo, that's the crown prince. They're about to turn right, and Princip is standing right there, and that's him. He's going to shoot the crown prince and start World War I. He's about 70 pounds. He's a tuberculosis uh, victim. That's Stalin in Siberia next to Kamenev. That's Kerensky, who, of course, had an office in the tower. Alexander Kerensky, the head of the provisional government. That's Lenin. You can see he's a very serious guy. That's Kashenska, the ballerina. That's Bolshevik headquarters. They evict her, and they take over the interior. They mess it up a little bit. That's the outside of her mansion. This is where the revolution happens. Lenin speaks from the balcony. That's Lavra Kornilov, a calm week, who's the supreme commander of the Russian army, and the right wing thought he could save the country. This is the only photograph when they seize power in the coup. That's Lenin at the podium. That's Martov. He's walked out of the room, the, the Menshevik. This is the first Bolshevik government. That's Lenin seated in the middle, bald head. That's Stalin with his hand over his face. Uh, Spiridonova, the terrorist. She had the Bolsheviks in her clutches in July 1918. She let them out. That's Trotsky in the black leather. You see him in the middle there? That's Yefram Sklyansky. That's Stalin's official portrait with the pipe uh, retouched, obviously, unlike the... That's Stalin's photo album, personal photo album. That's his wife, Nadia, 1917. They get married the next year. That's Sokolnikov, the finance minister. That's Kaganovich. This is Bolsheviks in Turkestan. This is the crazy guy who takes over Mongolia, uh, Baron Ungern von Sternberg. He's got Chinggis Khan kaftan on and the St. George's Cross. This is the Red Army, victorious. Oh, Hoover Archive. That's Saritz in the famine, 1923. It's going to be named Stalingrad two years later. That's Stalin and Lenin. Stalin had this set up. Look at the Napoleonic pose. They never published it because of that. That's when they sprung the, the, the Lenin dictation on Stalin. There's Lenin, supposedly dictation. You can see the dementia in his eyes. That's Lenin's funeral outside. This is taken from a newsreel. That's why it's a little bit. That's, as I say, Stalin's book on Lenin, best book on Lenin. He won the battle not only bureaucratically, but in terms of ideas. That's his office right here, Old Square. This wall is now gone. Commissariat of Agriculture. Foreign, foreign Affairs Commissariat. Also, Stalin liaison, secret police, or Cheka, original building. That's the military, the Alexander Military School. That's where Trotsky's office was. The, this is Stalin's inner secretariat. It looks like a commune, or actually it looks, it looks like the Hoover um, staff upstairs. <laughs> they ran his secretariat. That's Felix Derzhinsky. Uh, you can see he's tubercular, consumptive. He's half dead. He was the head of the secret police. That's Dzerzhinsky's funeral. You can see Unschlicht, Bukharin, Menzhinsky, the number two guy in the secret police, painted his fingernails red, had to lay down on a couch, wore a Persian kaftan. That's Yagoda, the guy Stalin picked to watch the secret police. Yevdokimov, he did the Shakti, the fake trial in 1928 about wrecking. That's Artuzov, the guy who's the son of the Swiss cheese maker who watched the other guy Founded counterintelligence. That's fat Grigory Zinoviev, and these are Kulak dolls. That's Kirov, the guy Stalin put in place of Zinoviev. These guys all get wiped out in the 
That's Mikayan and Orjanakidza, the three Caucasus musketeers. That's Stalin's apartment, right there. The only 17th century boyar residence in the Kremlin. That's where his wife shot himself in 32. That's Stalin's dacha in Zubalova. That's his son, Vasily, and Vasily's friend who came into the Stalin household as an orphan. That's little Svetlana, and that's Stalin's wife, Nadia. This is a private photograph. She refused to use the official Kremlin photograph. That's Yakov, Stalin's son from the first wife, 1927. That's Karolina Thiel. She ran the Stalin household, and that's Svetlana's nanny, Buichkova. That's Marshal Pivsutsky, the Polish uh, dictator or semi-dictator. That's Chiang Kai-shek. Pivsutsky and Chiang Kai-shek appear the most in Soviet counterintelligence materials. That's the Red Army in the 1920s, riding across Red Square. Usually you see tanks. Those are the military attaches in 1928 from all of the enemies of the Soviet Union. This is Stalin unretouched. You can see the face with the pockmarks and the uh, Stalin, Skripnik, and Yaroslavsky. You can see the charisma. This is Stalin in Siberia. That's him right there. That's when he told them he's collectivizing agriculture. That's how he got from the train station to the meeting when he told them he was going to collectivize 100 million peasants in that little horse-drawn cart. This is the Shakti trial, the foreign journalist. This is the faked documentation of wrecking that Stalin had them fake in the secret police. And that's a kulak, and that's a regular peasant, bare sandals and leather, you can see. And that's a Bukharin caricature of Stalin. Already in 1928, you're beginning to see the sociopathic behavior. That is the um, Russo-Japanese War, where the book begins. Sergei Vita, who was partially responsible for the war, but then extracted them. Now it's going to keep going around again. These are photographs from the book. <laughs> <laughs>